Hi, it's Grace, and this is a special episode of Frogmore Stew. Put my heart, yeah. Yeah, my heart belongs to South Carolina. Since I've started this podcast, many of you have reached out to ask more about the various topics or about legislation surrounding the topics that I've covered. So I thought it would be a good addition to add a weekly gab session with Caitlin Brewer. Caitlin is, like me, a political junkie, but maybe even more so. Her career has taken her all over the world, including Europe and Africa. She's worked with veterans and in the nonprofit sector, most recently at Darkness to Light. She can help us navigate the ins and outs of the bills going through our legislature. Caitlin, what's up? How are you? It's so good to be on the Frogmore Stew. Let me just start by saying this. Earlier this week on Frogmore Stew, we had a guest, Jessica McIntosh, who told us the story of her son, Thomas. And when we asked Jessica to be on the show, I wasn't aware that this same week there would be pretty major legislation going through Columbia that would directly affect her and her son. And if you haven't listened to her story, regardless of how you feel about this issue, it, it is actually way more complex than I think most of us realize, but also way more simplified than most of us realize. And I didn't have her on because I thought we'd all listen and change our minds. I had her on because I feel like this topic of being transgender, particularly transgender children, is top talk right now everywhere that you go. This is why traditional news and politicians' rhetoric really pits us against each other because Mm -hmm. we don't get to hear the complexities. So I thought doing this deeper dive today will help us walk through this. This bill is H4624, and it is a bill that basically has a number of anti-trans aspects. We have uh, Representative John McCravey to uh, review the bill with us today. McCravey, appreciate you being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, there are a few things we do as legislators that are more important than protecting vulnerable children. One of those important legislative protections that has come to pass is to protect minors from so-called gender transition procedures. First, what this bill does is protect minors from the use of hormone drugs known as puberty blockers. The second thing this bill does is protect minors from the irreversible effects of cross-sex hormones. The third thing this bill does is protect minors from radical and irreversible surgeries. It's also a fact that approximately 60% regret their choice later when they go through with these procedures. Just go back and look at the 60 Minutes documentary they did on this a couple years ago. I would offer the five to six minute introduction of the bill seemed to list a host of facts and studies that proved that gender affirming care was hurting our children. Mm -hmm. And he stated that he believed this was wrong. But interestingly enough, when the chairman of the subcommittee opened up for questions, Representative Jay Moore pressed McCravey on where those studies had come from and what were the sources of the facts that he kept repeating. You were putting out a lot of stats there, so I just wanted some, some clarification. Can you repeat the thing about the FDA as it relates to brain damage? Yes, uh, the, the FDA has warned that these drugs, the puberty blockers, mm-hmm. uh, carry a risk of causing uh, that pseudotumor cerebri that I mentioned uh, that has, uh, that's a severe disease. 
Uh, it's something that, that nobody wants. And then the 60% regret rate that you mentioned, what was the source of that? I believe there are several studies out there. I've reviewed a lot of them. The one that you were quoting. Well, I can't. I'll, I'll give it to you after this here, and I'll be glad to go find it for you. So that 60% regretting quote, you don't have the source for that? I believe I believe the 60 Minutes uh, program talked about that. I'm so not your sure source if that was the study. Minutes? Well, I'm not sure if that was the study I read, but I know that there's at least one or two that say 60%. But I'm just being for for clarification. You said it was a fact, and you but you don't have the source for that. Well, fact. it's a fact that there are studies that show that, but you don't have those studies. This bill essentially makes providing gender-affirming care to minors illegal, regardless of who those individuals are, their parents, guardians, doctors' approval, mental health providers believing that it's in the best interest of the minors. And for those that are currently being treated, the bill subscribes a weaning-off period that should end as of January 2025 if you're on prescribed medication. There are so many things in what you just said. For example, gender-affirming care. What does that mean? When I first heard that term, I just thought it meant what people call puberty blockers or reassignment surgery. But that's not actually what it is, right? It's something much more than that. Yeah, it's a holistic approach to someone's identity. When they say gender-affirming care, they're talking about mental health. They're talking about hormones. There's doctor and medical ongoing checks. But that mental health component, you know, that that's a critical part of what we are talking about when we speak about gender-affirming care. And there's a lot of misconception about gender-affirming care. So I really wanted to do a little myth-busting here today. Um, number one, there is no gender confirmation surgery occurring here in minors in South Carolina. None. Number two, gender-affirming care, as Dr. Greenhouse said, occurs with the intense involvement of parents. Minors are not making these decisions solo. Parental or guardian consent is required for hormonal care of patients who identify as trans. Another concern to take off the list. Number three, half of trans kids consider suicide and a third attempt suicide because of bullying such as this and forced outing. And I see these children in the ICU. I've pronounced several dead. Number four, mental health assessment and counseling is a prerequisite of the care in children with gender dysphoria, and this would be made illegal in this bill. To be clear, there's no such thing as a child coming in after watching a video on social media saying, I think I'm trans, and then we start them on meds. That just doesn't happen and can be taken off the list of concerns. Number five, gender-affirming care is not fringe care. It's evidence-based standard of care because it is suicide prevention care with strict guidelines intimately involving parents and caregivers. And if it becomes illegal, our trainees will need to learn this care elsewhere, and we will be at risk of malpractice. Which sort of leads me into the second thing that I want to talk about in this bill, and that is that although throughout this process in the last two and a half weeks, we've softened the language through an amendment process, there are serious parameters for mental health providers to provide services to children who are experiencing gender dysphoria in their parents. And it creates a lot of doubt and ambiguity as to what a service provider is actually allowed to talk to both the parents and the child. And I think that's really dangerous. If, for example, a therapist, where is the line between therapy for a child and gender-affirming care? 
What's the difference? Anyone who is under the age of 18 needs to have parental consent to be speaking to a mental health professional. What Mm -hmm. that mental health professional talks about with the child uh, most often is not fully disclosed to the parent, Mm -hmm. but there are themes that the mental health professional will bring back to the parent. And I am sure that gender becomes one of those things. Now, currently, therapists are mandated reporters, but they're mandated reporters for abuse. They are not mandated reporters for sexual orientation or Mm -hmm. gender transitioning. So if the mental health professional feels like the child might be in harm's way, they might not say anything to the parent about that to prevent something from happening. But anyway, it it gets complicated and murky. Thus, the reason legislating that should be taken very seriously. As someone who runs support groups, I have seen the harm that the denial of care and acceptance can cause. I have had teens come to me with self-harm wounds and had to intervene. And it's because of their parents denying them access and care. If we further isolate these teens by banning affirmative care across the states, we will be placing at least 3,700 self-identified transgender teens in the exact same high-emotion positions that lead to these self-harm events. And I say all of this from personal experience as well. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina in a very unaccepting family, and I began attempting suicide around the age of 12 in middle school. This battle escalated throughout my teens and early 20s, and it was having access to HRT and having affirmative care that finally put me in a position in life where I could be comfortable and happy with myself. Thank you for your time. And so essentially our legislature is saying to the parents of 3,700 trans kids in South Carolina that they are not allowed to publicly acknowledge their child's true self. We're not going to acknowledge that exists. And we're not going to allow medical professionals to say that it exists. I think that this is the other component of it all. You are now putting professionals in a place where it is counter to what they are being taught. And Mm -hmm. it's a moral conflict. Uh, And it's not just a moral conflict for the doctors and the mental health professionals. The third thing about this bill is that it requires school staff to out any children if the minor's perception of his or her gender is inconsistent with his or her sex. As a gay woman myself, the idea of my teacher telling my mom when I was young that I was gay, if she had heard me talking about it with a a classmate, that's Mm -hmm. scary beyond all possible comprehension. And not that my mom was a horrible mom. She wasn't. But my ability to defend it at that age probably wasn't sufficient. And her ability to absorb it when I was younger probably wasn't great. Mm -hmm. It's a timing thing. The way that this bill is written assumes that teachers aren't going to tell parents anything. This implies that teachers don't know how to handle a variety of situations with kids. And by the way, teachers know everything. They overhear conversations, just like you said, Caitlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids go to school and tell their teachers literally everything that goes on at home. It puts pressure on teachers to be a part of something that they shouldn't necessarily be a part of. Yeah, for sure. So finally, this bill, it's been talked about quite a bit in the news as a bill that affects only gender affirming care for minors. But there's one incredibly important line that it takes away the ability for transgender adults under the age of 26 to fill their prescriptions using Medicaid. And this is an important point because it's not being discussed and they're trying to slip it through. This would be cost prohibitive for a number of young people to be able to go through gender affirming care 
there once they become adults and consenting adults at that matter. Why do you think, Caitlin, that this one bill that affects 3,700 kids and their parents is such a priority? There are two reasons, in my opinion. The first is that it's a coordinated movement across the United States. We are seeing similar legislation introduced all over the country nearly simultaneously. And this is due to that influence of national level politics on local politics. Mm-hmm. We haven't t- talked about the process yet of the bill, but when the bill was in subcommittee, 48 people testified on January 10th. 47 of them were opposed to the bill and they were all local South Carolinians. Only one of those people was not from South Carolina. They testified via Zoom and they are part of a group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which is a national group that opposes transgender care. And they are the group behind most of the this legislation. We are the last Southern state, short of Virginia, that does not legally ban medical care for transgender youth or adults. Georgia bans best practice medication and surgical care for transgender youth. And Alabama and Florida go as far as to make it a felony crime to provide best practice medical care for transgender youth. So the second reason, which you quite frankly know better than anyone, is that it is primary season and it's time to get the base riled up. And passing this legislation with lots of commotion is certainly one way to do that. I just don't understand how they expect this to turn out. They Mm -hmm. essentially go after a topic that not a lot of people know or understand. And then they're using words and language to make people feel like it's immoral, like it's wrong, like it's parents that are manipulating their children, that it's teachers that are indoctrinating kids at school. But the reality is that it's 3,700 kids and their parents, and they're no match to this major machine nationally that is moving against them. Democracy is in danger when there's doubt. And Mm -hmm. doubt has been a thread through so much of what has happened in the last 20 years in the United States. And we are at what I would say is the climax of what doubt has produced in democracy Mm -hmm. in the United States. And these bills are a product of fear and doubt that institutions in our country have our best interest at heart. I think you're so spot on, Kaylin. When did we stop trusting doctors? When Mm -hmm. did we stop trusting teachers? COVID, that's when we stopped trusting (laughs) doctors and teachers. And that's unfortunate because like you said, democracy cannot survive doubt. That's a really very impactful line. A perfect example in the testimonies of this is that children are going to receive this care without parental consent or mental health advice. And every single pediatrician that testified stated that it is a fact. It is not possible in South Carolina to receive gender-affirming care without a mental health professional involved and the consent of the parent. And yet that is a talking point every single time you hear about this bill. Our legislature no longer trusts medical professionals that are considered mainstream medical professionals. That has been clear from testimony over and over that we have watched in Columbia for the last couple of years. One of the most important things that 
we as a community need to do around this issue is talk about it. And Mm -hmm. I think that part of the reason that I really loved having Jessica on this week is because people aren't talking about really important things, not because they don't care and not because they don't want to know. But I think a lot of people don't talk about things because they're afraid to use the wrong language. And that's not to say we shouldn't learn and use the proper language, but this isn't everyone's everyday thing. And so understanding that we need to give grace to each other is also an important part of this. There's a lot of complications around putting boxes around other people's identification, but you should be open and be willing to be educated daily. And that's exhausting for some people and they don't want to do it. And I think that's where the rub is, because I think people who are consistently marginalized don't want to feel like they have to educate all the time. And people who don't constantly have to educate people don't want to have to think about it because it is exhausting. That's part of change. And that adds another layer of change. This has been an incredible conversation today. And I I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just wrap it up as to where the bill is now. If you turned on the TV or read the Post and Courier of the State, you know that there was an incredible amount of discussion. And regardless of all of that discussion, it did pass the House. Right. Party party lines. lines. Yep. Which means that it does move on to the Senate. To your point earlier, Grace, about the fact that we just need to keep talking about this. We've had a lot (laughs) of heavy conversation today. And I thought we could end with something fun or light because I feel like we have a lot of heavy conversations ahead of us in the coming months. So do you have a thought of the day, Caitlin? I'm going to stay a little heavy only because I am interested (laughs) in global warming architecture. And the reason why is because my hometown, Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, dealt with the storm from last week. I mean, it was the whole East Coast was dealing with it. Anyway, Uh we had this gorgeous along the ocean, rocky coastline drive. And in the nearly 40 years I've been alive, not once has the ocean destroyed that road. And this most recent storm, it not only destroyed it, it obliterated it. So I really want to educate myself on global warming architecture. Who are the innovative, geeky architecture nerds who are designing the future of building? That's been on my brain this week. And so heavy, yes, but also I'm curious. I'm just, it's piqued my curiosity. Wow. So I had this crazy thing happen today and I was driving in a part of town that has a lot of railroad tracks and I suddenly developed this really weird fear of tracks. I was like slamming on my brakes and looking both ways multiple times before I would cross them over. And I was like, what is, I am not an anxious person. What is happening right now? And it's because two weeks ago, I saw a news story about this guy that got hit by a train. He was just driving about over some railroad tracks. And I guess the gate didn't come down and his car was hit by a train. It's so buried in my brain. And I realized that one story that I saw multiple weeks ago is now embedded in my brain that I had a real reaction in real life. So there were a couple things around that. One is from a government perspective, I usually trust that all of the systems are working. But because I saw that one story weeks ago, even though it's anecdotal, it's now embedded in my brain that I don't trust 
that's going to work. As I was driving home, I was like, that's the answer to all of it, right? We've lost that trust. Let us all end our week thinking about how we learn to trust again. That's all at the stew for today. Caitlin and Grace are out. Put my heart, yeah. Yeah, my heart belongs to South Carolina. The Frogmore Stew Podcast with Grace Cowan is produced and directed by TJ Phillips with the Podcast yeah. Solutions Network. That's a place where I want to be.